From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a break from the unending coronavirus news to celebrate things we may have taken for granted. Concerts, sports, road trips. We'll drive through Glenwood Canyon virtually, then learn how the state got some of its more unusual place names. You wouldn't think that pioneers coming to a part of western Colorado would uh, choose something out of literary history to name their community. And while sports may be on a timeout, stories of triumph last forever. So longtime columnist Rick Riley will tell us some. And as concert venues sit silent, we'll draw from the pictures seared into the mind of Red Rock's longtime photographer. Plus, pandemic postcards, so you don't take this moment for granted either. I sent one to my mom, thanking her for teaching my daughter how to make scones via a Zoom cooking class. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today's show is a love letter to the experiences we've lost, at least for a while, because of COVID-19. Things we may have taken for granted. Rock concerts, road trips. They are activities we've given up to protect one another. Here's Governor Jared Polis. It's not because camping or being outdoors is dangerous. It's not, as long as you respect social distancing. It's really about honoring those in our mountain communities and other affected areas. And it's those other activities that come along with it, right? You are visiting gas stations and stores in that community. And those communities need to be ready. Some of them have been hard hit. Uh, We're going to honor that. And when they're ready, of course, our Front Range residents will return. Many of those mountain communities are already very welcoming of second homeowners. Please check with those mountain communities if they're ready. But for now, try to recreate within 10 miles of your home. And as I said, it's a small price to pay. You might not be able to go to your favorite park, your second favorite park, go to your municipal park, go to your fourth favorite park, uh, stay socially distant, stay safe, and of course, stay home whenever you can during this crisis. With those limits on non-essential travel, this might not seem like the time to send postcards. But that's exactly what Matt Neeran wants people to do. He's in advertising and wondered how his firm could give back. So he got his creative team to design postcards. Postcards he wants you to write during the pandemic, but that won't be sent for a while. It's so easy once things return to normal to go back to your life and to forget about all the experiences that you've had. So we wanted to build a tool that would not only raise money for some worthy organizations, but also a way to remember what you were thinking or what you were feeling, where you could either write a note to yourself or maybe a friend or a family member to capture this experience. We're going to hold these notes um, because we figured if we sent them right now, they wouldn't be as meaningful. So... We're going to hold the notes and pick a date sometime in the not too distant future. And we're going to print on demand and we're going to mail them out to people all over the country. Kind of a postcard time machine. The project's called Remind Me What Matters. You go to the website of the same name, pick a card, type your message, and for a dollar, it's sent off. Half of that pays for printing and postage. The other half goes to charity, a food bank, a small business relief fund, a foundation that supports nurses. People have been making additional donations on top of that, too. And Matt says he has sent several postcards himself. I sent one to my mom, thanking her for teaching my daughter how to make scones via a Zoom cooking class. I sent one to one of my business partners, thanking him for going to the office and continuing to check our mail. And so I think it's 
all these little memories and things that were meaningful to me and either sharing them with friends or sharing them with family members or even mailing them to yourself. Of the 30-some images his team came up with, some are haunting, some are funny, some are sweet. There's photos of empty streets, um, downtown Denver, empty Coors Field. We've also chosen places that you wish you could go right now. So there's some beautiful scenic landscapes from all over the country to some things that maybe are a little bit sarcastic or a little bit funny, like a, an empty toilet paper roll. That is Matt Neeran, a partner at Cultivator Advertising and Design in Denver, which is behind RemindMeWhatMatters.com, a kind of pandemic time capsule through postcards. It's fitting, given that today's show, as I said earlier, is a love letter to experiences and places we miss. Places like Glenwood Canyon, where the Colorado River rushes past a rare stacked stretch of I-70, Travel restrictions mean you may not be there for a while, but poet Jovan Mays can take us there virtually. Hey there. Did you feel that? Probably pretty hard to know. But just a minute ago, you just drove through Colorado's youngest volcano. The Utes called this dot Sarah. Quite appropriate for the translation meaning something new. Something foreign, a chasm, a rupture of the orthodox. Feel the sky's manipulation. Feel the sidewalls rising like you're entering a half pipe, but more of a pipe organ, because the only borders in here are in the sky. An orchestra of kestrels, golden, red-tailed and ospreying, Neil Sign Newman. Neil Sign Newman, nothing without providence, nothing without deity, sanctified sandstone scripture, white water sacrament, a conifer congregation, a forest of formations, ridge line gospel. Welcome to Glenwood Canyon, the Cathedral of the Rockies. Observe its spires and steeples, this hollowed homage excavated eminence, striated tenement, the genetics of geology, bouldered brilliance, scintillated supremacy of folklore, legendary legions of the lifted, pious peaks of protrusion. You right now are an echo of the unthinkable. Right now you are riding on the axis of hymnals, the spine of the sacred, the heresy of the holiness, where exits don't need a name. This land where lakes tell suspense stories. These tunnels are not just tunnels. They're a chance to catch your breath. Way before silver booms, before California zephyrs, way before statehood was just a state of mind. Because right now, you are dancing with 500 million years of river. Way before the Spanish came up with the word Colorado was just the color red that she painted this body. The way she's severed through this crevice. Is she a composer, a mason, a carpenter, a barnstorm of rapids ripping from the mouth in which a roaring fork fed this family? The Old West outlaws wanted to call this town defiance, but the Colorado doesn't celebrate Doc's holidays. Such mud in her melanin, such torrent in her tails. 
This is the water that forged the Grand Canyon, the source that supplies the Southwest, the lifeblood of the desert. Roll down your windows, hear her sing you through, wade in her warmth, wallow in her wilderness, marinate in her medicine. In this land, admiration is the only accepted currency. So leave everything intact and leave nothing behind. Javon Mays with Something New, Glenwood Canyon, a poem he wrote for an I-70 audio tour. Road trips may be on hold right now, but on today's show, we're experiencing virtually things we might have taken for granted before the pandemic. So when we come back, a celebration of some of the state's most unusual place names. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Words cannot capture how important CPR is to our family. I am edified daily by the well-programmed classical music, and my wife and I both rely on CPR News for clear, focused, and factual reporting, especially during the coronavirus outbreak. CPR, you are my go-to source for news and my solace for music. Thank you so much for being there, especially now. Join me in keeping all of us connected by giving to CPR.org. Coloradans have had to temper their wanderlust because of orders to stay close to home. We are feeding some of that restlessness on today's show virtually. Next up, a tour of some of the state's most unusual place names. Swink, Dotsero, Quandry. Where'd they come from? Author Jim Flynn found out for his book a compendium of curious Colorado place names. Before we dig into some of the stranger names, I really enjoyed the story of a place uh, that seems straightforward, Golden. Right? You're th- thinking, well, there's a lot of gold and gold rush history here, so it must be named for gold. That is not the case. Correct. It actually came from a man named Thomas Golden, who was an early prospector in what is now Jefferson County. And he started a mining camp in that area, and it picked up his name, the Golden Mining Camp. And that grew into the town of Golden, so it didn't have a darn thing to do with gold. But it's an awfully good last name to have. It if worked you're going... <laughs> out well. Yeah, I don't know whether he ever found any or not, but that's where it came from. On to the name of our state, Colorado. What does it mean? That's a Spanish word that refers to a color, a kind of reddish-brown color, and probably the best English translation of that color would be ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y. And early Spanish-speaking Explorers in Colorado gave that name to the Colorado River, Rio, Colorado, because of the uh, sedimentation in the river that can create a sort of brown, reddish color. And then the name carried over to the territory of Colorado in 1861 and the state of Colorado in 1876. I had a lot of aha moments reading this, and one of my uh, personal favorites is Werfano. So that's the county in southern Colorado. I knew it meant orphan in Spanish, but I was not aware of why. Yeah, it does mean orphan in Spanish. And uh, for many, many centuries, probably, there has been a very prominent landmark just to the north of Walsenburg and right along the I-25 corridor on the east side of the highway that was given that name because it's a mound of volcanic rock that sits out in the middle of a flat plain area all by itself, and it's kind of an orphan. So that's the derivation of the name. And then it carried over to the county when Colorado became a territory in 1861 and as one of the original 17 counties in the territory. 
Let's stick with southern Colorado and the town of Swink. Population 610. And it's named for a farmer who really transformed that part of the state. Right. A man named George Swink. He came here from the East Coast, and one of the things he missed was melons. And he was talking to a friend one day, and he said, boy, I really miss the melons that I could grow back on the East Coast. And his friend uh, went to someone he knew in Massachusetts. And as I recall, it was a former governor of Massachusetts. And uh, that person sent out some seeds to George for melons. And George used those seeds to begin to develop uh, what became the Rocky Ford cantaloupes and watermelons. And he basically made that part of Colorado famous as a melon-growing area. It seems that we should know that name Swink better, given how much melon we eat from that part of the state. Yeah, although if you've ever driven through the town, you know, you, you might not notice. <laughs> What's the deal with Steamboat Springs? So the river through town just is not large enough for a steamboat. That can't no, be where the that, name comes from. That's not it. The name comes from a spring, a geothermal spring in the area that actually made a chugging sound like a steamboat. So the spring was named Steamboat Spring, and then that name carried over to the town. Unfortunately, in the early 1900s, a rail line was built through the area of the spring, and somehow in the process, they wiped out the chugging part of the spring, so it chugs no more. Before we explore some of um, my epiphanies here, what what were some of your favorite stories behind place names? Well, you know, the one that amazes me that people just don't seem to know, Ryan, is Denver. I mean, I've lived in Colorado 40-whatever years, and when I started working on this book, I didn't know where Denver came from. Okay. Uh, I have yet to find anyone who did. and it's a it's a guy. Yeah, he was James W. Denver was the governor of the territory of Kansas in 1858 when William Larimer started a settlement out here. and Larimer was a land speculator and he was from Kansas and he knew uh, Denver and kind of wanted to schmooze him in pursuit of governmental favors for his new settlement. So the name carried over to the new settlement that Larimer and some others started that grew into what we now know as Denver. So the name came from the territorial governor of Kansas, James W. Denver. The name Montrose um, on the Western Slope has a literary connection. And I I just loved learning about this. Yeah, you wouldn't think that pioneers coming to a part of Western Colorado would uh, choose something out of literary history to name their community, but that's what happened here. The name came from a, a novel from uh, written by Sir Walter Scott that was published in 1819 called A Legend of Montrose. And the novel was actually about a steamy love triangle, but in the background there's a civil war going on in Scotland in the 1640s, and one of the important players there was the Earl of Montrose. So somehow that worked its way into uh, our current city of Montrose. Sneffels, Matt Sneffels, one of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks, also may have a literary connection. It's such a strange word, Sneffels. Where does it come from? Yeah, there's still a mystery about that, but the theory that I like best, and this may be as much legend as fact, but uh, we have another novel, Jules Verne's 1864 novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Right. Had a volcano in Iceland that had the name Sneffel, S-N-A-E-F-E-L-L, and uh, that was where the hole in the earth was that allowed you to travel to the center of the earth. And so the, the mountain here in Colorado was named probably 10 years later. So there's a chronology there that comes pretty close together, 1864, 1874. So 
That's one of the theories. Uh, another one that's probably kind of silly is that it was so cold and miserable in this part of Colorado that the miners in the 1870s all caught colds and had the sniffles, and that carried over <laughs> to the name of the mountain. Yes, but Mount Sniffles somehow doesn't have the same gravitas even as Sniffles. No, it yeah. just doesn't work. Uh, another peak, Quandry. What's it referring to? Yeah, and that one is interesting also. There were a group of miners uh, on what is now Quandry Peak, and they came upon an ore deposit that they couldn't identify. And so they found themselves in a quandary. And I don't know whether they ever figured out what the mineral was, but at least this inspired them to name the peak Quandry Peak. One of my favorite place names is Dot Cerro. So it's along I-70 in Eagle County. And it's it's two words put together. What is dot zero? Well, the theory there, and I'll use that word because I'm not sure anybody knows for sure, but there was an old railroad map for the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad, and it showed a route line, a railroad route line, and there was a starting point on this map for the rail line uh, with a decimal point and a zero. So dot zero. Dot zero becomes and, dot zero, yeah, potentially. Something like that. And then the community... Uh, developed around that location, and and so the name evolved out of that. Uh, As you write, place names may come from people's names, from books, as we've heard, from geology, nature. And of course, uh, lots of places in Colorado carry American Indian names, Uray, Arapaho, Manitou. Uh, But tell us what Yampa means. And that's the river that runs through Steamboat, by the way, also in Grab County. It's one of Colorado's major rivers. It goes some 250 miles and... uh, to a confluence with the Green River, which then goes into the Colorado River. but And Yampa's a town. Right. and But the name is an Indian word that referred to a plant that, uh, at least many, many years ago, was very abundant in northwest Colorado and was a major food source for the Native Americans living in that area. And if you cook the roots of this plant, it produces something in the nature of water chestnuts. Uh, and again, it was a staple of the Indian populations in that area. The Indians also discovered that if you ate it raw, it worked very well as a laxative. And okay. uh, doing my research for this book, I decided to stay away from that. I didn't really want to experiment. And uh, I see, to try it for yourself. Uh, so who, who knew that uh, the Yampa River might be related to a laxative in some distant regard? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that either. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Author Jim Flynn has written a compendium of curious Colorado place names. He lives in a place called Colorado Springs. We spoke in 2017. Travel isn't the only thing people miss. Normally this time of year, fans would be cheering on the Rockies and the Rapids. Well, we can't bring stadium events back right now, we can share a love of the game with Hall of Fame sports writer and former ESPN columnist Rick Riley, who's from Boulder. I spoke with him in 2014 about his retrospective, Tiger Meet My Sister, and other things I probably shouldn't have said. For people not familiar with your writing style, I think you actually sum it up best in the book. You write more about people who play sports and I'll add um, watch sports as well, uh, than the sports themselves. Why approach sports that way? I don't know. I always thought it was more interesting the guy at the end of the bench than the guy who started, you know? Maybe because I was always at the end of the bench. 
But I always thought there were great stories to be told and fans and, and guys who played one play their entire lives. I always thought that was interesting. I have this buddy named Bill Sheft. He writes the monologue for David Letterman. And, you know, I tend to write human interest pieces because they move me so much. And he goes, I love reading your column each week just to see what body part is missing. <laughs> I'm always writing about some high school kid who's only got one arm. Or I wrote about a high school marching band this last year that was blind. And they played in front of two deaf football teams. So they couldn't see how good the game was. And the players couldn't hear how good the band was. So <laughs> he always likes to make fun of, of me and the fact that I like to write about people that maybe aren't Barry Bonds or Lance Armstrong. Yeah, I mean, you describe that with some levity, but you're obviously very moved by those stories of, of overcoming something. Yeah, and just small people doing big things. There's a, a column in this book, Tiger Meet My Sister, about a prison high school football team. And in prison, you know, every game is on the road. So this team showed up at this uh, high school in Texas one night, and they were wearing shackles, uh, as they're supposed to. And when they get on the field, the shackles are undone. And they were shocked to turn around and notice that half of the team's fans were on their side of the field wearing their colors. And half the cheerleaders were rooting for them. And even though they lost the game by 35 points, they gave their coach a Gatorade bath because they'd never had a cooler of Gatorade before. They were just gobsmacked by the kindness that this team had shown them. And as they got on the bus one kid leans out the window and says, I don't know how this happened, but I hope it happens again. So anyway, I don't know. I just, I just think that beats the hell out of what somebody hit on Tuesdays on AstroTurf when they're away from Wrigley Field. I just, I've never liked numbers. I've always liked stories. One athlete that you clearly admire on the pro end of things is John Elway. Uh, you write that at your funeral, you'd like Elway to throw a bunch of nerf footballs into the crowd to keep people entertained. Um, there's also apparently a photograph of Elway applying makeup to your face. I'm guessing this is before you go on TV. Um, you're standing on a football field laughing. How did you first meet Elway? <laughs> I, I forgot about that picture. Yeah, I, was, I do Monday night countdowns. So we, we go live from the field of Monday night games. And the makeup lady was applying some makeup, last-minute makeup, and he came over and took over, saying that I wasn't near enough. I knew him the first time when he was drafted out of the blue, huh. or rather traded for by the Denver Broncos. So I went to his frat room at Stanford, and where <laughs> you, he, I was welcomed into his room, and I opened the door, but you could only get the door open about a foot because he had this giant waterbed in his tiny little frat room. And uh, I liked him immediately. From then on, off the record, he would uh, really say stuff to me that told me what his life was like. And as we went through his career, I was at the Denver Post. He was at the Broncos, you know, and I even had to write the Elway watch. You know, John Elway didn't eat his peas today at lunch. And yet at <laughs> night, we'd go out and have a beer and I could hear what was going on in his life. And then later, we both went through our divorces together and, you know, the problems with raising kids and the glories of it and yeah, just we just become friends, which just doesn't happen very often between athletes and sports writers of all things. Yeah, I want to pick up on that idea that John Elway was honest with you and open with you. I, I imagine that that is something rare and wonderful for a sports writer when an athlete gives you more than 
you know, the, the cliche line, oh, we tried hard, oh, we didn't quite make it, or yeah, you know, this victory was because of hard work, you know, all of the cliches you hear a million times on ESPN. <clears throat> right. Well, mind you, this a lot of it was off the record, yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, which didn't really help me. Um, but sometimes it would help me. He would say things on the record like, I don't know if you remember um, the time he, his first game against Pittsburgh, and he's on the road, and he looks across the line, and there's Jack Ham with three teeth spitting at him. And he told me, I just wanted to click my heels three times and go home. <laughs> I said, I'll give all the money back. Just let me go home. Or the time he lined up behind the right guard instead of the center and was embarrassed. Or the time he, he was written up in the Rocky Mountain News for only giving away small candy bars when all the rich people in, on his block were giving away full-size candy bars. And he said, you know... I just, I just feel smothered in this town, and that's why I don't want to live here in the off-season. And I wrote that, and all of Denver just rose up with kindness trying to back off him. And they did, in fact, back off, and he, and he did, in fact, stay around here during the off-season. So, you know, we've, we've gone from our 20s to our 50s together, and a lot has happened. I want to ask you to tell another story about Elway. This one is depicted in one of my favorite columns in the book. It has to do with your wife's family. Um, They live in Montana. Share the story of your nephew, Jake, and the connection to Elway, would you? Well, my wife was adopted off the Blackfeet Indian Reservation of Browning, Montana. So she didn't get to know her birth family till she was in her 30s. And she found out she had these these four hulking brothers, uh, Native American uh, brothers, and one of them was this guy they called Little Bob, but he wasn't little at all. And Little Bob uh, was an alcoholic and, and died of alcoholism at about age 40 and left behind a kid named Jake. And Jake and Little Bob loved John Elway. They lived for John Elway, and they wore John Elway's jersey. And, in fact, they buried Little Bob in John Elway's jersey. But Jake had never been to a Bronco game. So uh, one of the relatives said, could he come down and go with you to a game? So we said, sure. And we took him to, uh, first, before the game, we took him to Elway's just to show him the restaurant and the stuff, the memorabilia. And sure enough, there's John Elway. And he came over to say hello. And this kid's eyes went like Frisbees. And John Elway was so kind to him. And he bought his lunch and said, hey, why don't you come to the game with me? And this kid's like, yes. And so we all went to the game in John Elway's box and then after the game, Elway goes, come have dinner at the restaurant. So we go have dinner at the restaurant. And Elway orders the kid a steak and a salad and then cuts the kid's meat. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. And the kid was just beside himself. And we're sitting there after the dinner and we're having a glass of wine. And a lady comes up to us and says, uh, does anybody know whose kid that is in the bathroom crying? He's talking to his mother crying. And we realized it was Jake. He was talking to his mother, saying that it was the greatest day of his life. And John Elway didn't have to do that, but he did. And it's just part of part of the reason I love the guy. I'd love to actually have you read the end of the column. So this is on page 98. A lot of athletes don't want the burden that comes with being a role model. But what I want to tell them is, you don't get to choose. I know it's a hassle, but it matters. Because you never know when you might just lead a kid out to where the light is better. And that was Elway at one point in the day. Jake asked, could he have a picture? And it was in the restaurant. And uh, John said, yeah, but let's go outside where the light is better. 
I, I want to talk about um, another aspect of football. It's certainly a sport with heroes and those who worship them. But over the past few years, the long-term effects of playing the game have become more obvious. Uh, head trauma can lead to suicide and dementia later in life. And like other fans, you've asked yourself whether you can keep watching this sport and enjoying it. Uh, do you worry about your friends in the sport? I mean, including John Elway and what will happen to them? I do. You know, Howard Cosell quit covering boxing because he called it a blood sport and he could no longer participate in the destruction of men. And it suddenly hit me one day uh, when, when I was talking to Carl Mecklenburg, the great Denver Bronco, who said that his head is so dinged up over the years from playing pro football that when he goes on the road, he's a motivational speaker, when he goes on the road, he has to take a picture of the hotel he's staying at because he won't remember it that night. And he has to take a picture of the room number because he won't remember it. Huh. And he has to take a picture of his car where he parked it at DIA because he won't remember. And I'm like, but I, I've, I've made my living covering these guys and their exploits. The day after that column ran, where I said, you know, I just don't love it like I used to because I, I am participating in the willful destruction of men. The day after I wrote that column, Tony Dorsett announced that he had long-term brain damage. He can't remember things. He drives down the, finds himself driving down a highway in a car and has no idea why he's there or where he's going. I mean, Brett Favre came out this year and said he doesn't remember entire seasons of his daughter's soccer career. Soon it's going to be his own seasons. So, you know, people ask, why am I getting out of sport and sports writing? Part of it is this, is that my favorite sport is so destructive, and, and I feel guilt at making money writing about it. I want to say that Tony Dorsett, who you mentioned, was a, a running back for the Dallas Cowboys and the Denver Broncos. Right. Let's talk about Lance Armstrong. For many years and through many rounds of accusations, you consistently defended him. Why were you so convinced at the time um, he was telling the truth? I guess because in the 14 years I covered him, and I covered most of his Tour de France wins, every time I'd bring up, seems like every time we got together, he would always let me interview him on the massage table. So I'd have to sort of lay down on the carpet and look up at his face through the little hole in the massage table. But he would swear up and down that the latest accusation was a complete lie, and it was brought on by the French or his opponents or, or some sort of rival of Nike or Trek, and that he was going to sue them. And in fact, he would sue them. He sued the Sunday Times of London and won $500,000, knowing they were telling the truth. Right. Uh, you know, he sued masseuses and mechanics, knowing they were telling the truth and forcing them to spend sometimes their own life savings defending themselves. And he would tell me on the record, off the record, this country, that country. And I would say, look, dude, just, just tell me if you're going to show up guilty in all this, because I'll stop defending. Tell me off the record, hmm. and I'll just, I won't, I'm not allowed to use anything you say off the record, but I'll at least stop looking like an idiot. And he said, no, you can do this. And then 14 years of that, and then he goes on Oprah and, and, and confesses that everything he'd been telling me and the world was a lie. And 10 minutes before he went on Oprah, I got a two-word email which said, sorry, dude. And I realized, sorry, dude, isn't even 14 letters, much less 14 years. Hmm. Did he say anything after the Oprah interview, or is that the extent of the communication? 
Well, then I, compl- uh, I began to start pillaging myself and him, myself for believing him and him for being such a liar. And then four weeks ago, I asked him, could I come down and speak to him in person in Austin? And to his credit, he did say yes. And I came down to his house, which new house, because he had to sell his big houses. And I was just so depressed to see him so happy. <laughs> he looked really good. I mean, he looked filled out. Uh, he looked at peace. He had his little three-year-old daughter on his lap. And I was like, what gives you the right to be so happy? And he goes, because I don't have to lie anymore. I, I know that this is bottom, and I can work my way up from here. And I said, but you lied. Why'd you lie to my face? You could have told the truth. He said, if I'd have told the truth, you'd have written it, and then everything would have come down. And I said, everything came down anyway. And he goes, yeah, I guess it did. But at the time, there were so many people depending on my lies, including myself. So, you know, if you want to feel a little sorry for him, it's not easy. But if you do, you can feel sorry that he cannot go anywhere in the cancer space. He loved helping cancer patients. He did start a foundation that raised $500 million. Right. He, he says, I never lied in that space. That was all real. I loved helping people. And he did. I would be with him, and he'd spend an hour every day writing people back, perfect strangers who, who'd just been given the news that they had cancer and what to do now. And, and he sort of talked these people off the ledge every day. And he can't do that anymore, which he definitely probably has coming. Did you put him on a pedestal? Well, of course, because I loved that story. You know, I'm a sucker for those off-the-deathbed stories. A guy has stage four cancer, 12 tumors. They're giving him 40% to live, and he goes on and beats the world in these 22-day races, which requires suffering, which requires taking yourself as close to death as you probably can in sport, and then winning seven times in a row when, when that never had even come close to happening. So... I guess I did. I did. Your father was a golf player. He was also an alcoholic. And you write that you picked up golf in high school, quoting here, partly to understand what was so wonderful about a game that would keep a man from coming to his kids' games and piano recitals and birthday parties. Yeah, you know, when you, when you grow up the son of an alcoholic and a bad one, uh, you, you, you get these signs when he's coming home and there were almost always the worst signs were the the sound of spikes coming up the sidewalk the cement sidewalk and that meant oh crap and and it was you know nine o'clock at night so you knew he'd played golf and then he'd been drinking ever since and lamps were going to get busted possibly and you know noses occasionally and it was nothing but trouble so I just associated that sound of golf with trouble and heartache and terror. But it was only later when I was in high school and my friends started playing that I tried it and fell in love with it and realized that you didn't have to drink. You didn't have to get drunk immediately after playing golf. You didn't have to drink while you played golf. And I fell in love with the idea of hitting a ball 300 yards, no matter where it went, falling against the blue sky and green trees. And and just, I, I loved it. And so I played golf, but never with him. I tried never to play with him. And then when he turns about 60, he finally realized he was a drunk and went to AA and stopped drinking and never drank again. And then we finally got to know each other. And I remember taking him to the Masters. And I said, why? Why? Why did you choose golf and drinking over us? And he said, I didn't know. 
I didn't know. I was just in love with booze. And he apologized up and down. And we learned to play golf together. And the column came out right after he died. It was my first column at ESPN. And the great thing about that column was that so many people wrote and emailed and said, I think I'm your dad. I think I now realize I'm a drunk. Hmm. And that column has helped me see it. And I'm going to AA now, and I'm trying to be a better father. I think alcohol just clouds your judgment so that you don't even know what you're doing to your own kids. So I love, I love columns like that that maybe add up to something for somebody else. Rick, can I engage in some pop psychology for a second? Okay. Is it possible that your interest in sports, which is a world in which there are mentors and coaches and leaders, is it possible that your interest in sports is partly a search for a good dad or a good of father? Of course. Of course. I remember my first job at the Boulder Daily Camera was covering the women's basketball team. And there was a, a famous coach at Colorado called Sox Walseth. And I had written something about him. He was no longer the coach. But he called me up to his office, and he scolded me. He said, you know, you're, you've hurt people with this column, and you need to be better, choose more wisely. And he said, you know, I think your parents should have taught you this, and if they, if they haven't taught you this, I'm going to teach it to you. And I remember I cried. I cried in his office because it, he totally became in that moment a father to me, which I hadn't had. And <laughs> people have, have said this before to me. He says, you seem to be a guy in search of a father. Huh. And quite often, uh, it, it has been people that I've admired. Like I always went to see John Wooden. Every year I'd go to see him on his birthday, the great UCLA coach, because he treated me like, my, like I was his son. And he'd give me advice and he'd sort of critique me and tell me how to behave. I love that feeling. And uh, so that's a really good point you just made. And uh, I think that's what has driven me the most. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Rick Riley, who started an illustrious sports writing career in Colorado. We spoke right before his induction into the Hall of Fame in 2014 about his book, Tiger, Meet My Sister, and Other Things I Probably Shouldn't Have Said. Up next, concerts are a no-no for now, but can we still reminisce with a longtime rock photographer? Yes, yes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Kevin Beatty is a photojournalist and reporter for Denverite and CPR News, telling stories with pictures every day. And he's aiming for what he calls on-the-groundiness. Yeah, the on-the-groundiness is the reason why I've always been excited about this news outlet. We live here too. We are not just sort of speaking from a high plane and the photos are the way that I get to express that. Look for award-winning photojournalism from Colorado Public Radio at denverite.com and cpr.org. What was the last concert you attended before the pandemic shut everything down? For me, it was bleachers at the Fox in Boulder. I can still picture lead singer Jack Antonoff interacting with the crowd. You know who has a lot of mental pictures to draw from and actual pictures? Lisa Siciliano. She has photographed some of the biggest names in music. Tom Petty, B.B. King, Iggy Pop, Willie Nelson. It just goes on and on. Siciliano is one of the last remaining rock and roll art photographers. For years, she was the house photographer at Red Rocks. 
we spoke in 2018. And Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. To me, your photos of the gender-bending shock rock hero, Marilyn Manson, really stand out. Thank you. In one photo, he's wearing this spiked feathered (laughs) helmet contraption with his mouth revealing big white teeth. Then there's one in this S&M bodice thing Mm -hmm. with ripped (laughs) pantyhose. How does Marilyn Manson compare to the many other artists you shoot? He's pretty up there as awesome to shoot because, you know, he does have to work for me. He really likes having his photo taken as well. He's one of the few people that lets you shoot the entire show sometimes, and that doesn't happen very often. Oh, is it usually that you get a window? You do. You get one to three songs, generally. There have been a couple times where I've had 60 seconds to shoot. It's kind of crazy. Who puts the 60-second rule well, on Well, there was... Um, <laughs> one was uh, Erica Badu, and one was Stevie Wonder. So, yeah, and Stevie was really rough because we weren't even allowed to take our first shot until he played his first note, so we couldn't even take photos of him entering the stage. So that was really rough. When they choose the minute window, what is it you think they're trying to manage? That's what I would really like to know. (laughs) That's a really good question because it's really strange. A lot of it is management itself doing that because the same band won't have the same rules every single time. Ah, if management changes. Yes. So sometimes, you know, like Marilyn Manston, for instance, he let us shoot the whole show twice. And then other times he let us shoot one song. So I don't know if it's how they're feeling. Maybe they're feeling super awesome in how they look or how the show's going. Or maybe it's a bad hair day. Exactly. It could be anything. So I don't try to guess it. A lot of times we don't know until we get there. It's helpful to understand that you are not backstage necessarily with the artists, right? Yes, unless it's a a band that hires me, which happens. I just did a three-run shoot with the Little Smokies, and I was able to go anywhere and shoot the whole show, and I was able to go backstage and on stage. So unless you're being hired by the band, you basically are told where you can stand. Sometimes it's behind the artist. Sometimes it's far away where you can't even see. Sometimes it's right in front. That's ideal when it's right in front and you can move about. So Do you ever get their sweat on you? <laughs> I got spit on before, yeah. <laughs> not, not on purpose. No, not on purpose. Just like the... No. Uh, Femi Cootie had his saxophone and he took the reed out and just... All the spit got, yeah, that was not so fun. (laughs) It occurs to me that there are quite a few moments in performance, especially if it's an intense performance, Mm -hmm. where, I I don't really want to put a value judgment on it, but where people are kind of ugly. They're straining, right? Yeah. Um, They're straining to hit a note or they're contorted. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you aim to preserve or... Is that something that you hope to move past and catch something pretty? It depends on the artist. I I feel like every artist is different. Um, A lot of times I try to capture the in-between moments, the quiet moments. So right after that strain, they might stop and look to the side and close their eyes. And that's more interesting to me sometimes. I think there's an Alicia Keys photo that you took. There is, yeah, yeah, where she's just kind of looking off to the side and... I do a lot of quiet moments because that's something that you don't really see very often. And it's kind of that in between, like the silent spaces that I like a lot. Some people live for the fortune. Some people live just 
you start in this? Very randomly. It, it was not planned. I was in my 30s already. I was bored. I was working at the Fox Theater as a cocktail waitress. I got out of school, college early, never used my degree. I was actually supposed to be doing what you're doing. Radio. <laughs> yes. And the Fox is in Boulder, by the, the way. The Fox Theater is in the Boulder. So I was cocktail waitressing there for a long time. And I just brought my, I bought a camera from a neighbor that happened to be selling one. Just Brought it to shows with me because back then there weren't a lot of rules. It was very different back then. So I just brought it with me. There was no photo passes. Now to go into the Fox where I've been shooting for 20 years, I need a photo pass. But back then you didn't. So I would have my camera up on the bar during the encore. I'd grab it and go shoot some photos. And sure enough, I did this for a couple months. And then my husband's mom was working at a magazine, a music magazine in New Jersey. And Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were coming to Pepsi Center. And I said, oh, that'd be so cool to shoot that. I said, why don't you see if your mom can get me a photo pass? Sure enough, she did, which was kind of a fluke. And I went in and shot that show. My second show was Metallica. <gasps> and I ended up getting a killer shot of James Hetfield, like killer I sent it on a whim to the guy from Red Rocks. The guy from Red Rocks called me down for an interview, and I got the job. So it... the, the job was open of Red Rocks official photographer? Yeah, there was a few of us there. So there was like a team back in the day. And yeah, he went and got a contract. And I was like, ooh, I better learn what I'm doing really quick. <laughs> favorite artist to photograph? We've talked about Marilyn Nance. Iggy Pop Nance. Iggy is Pop. another huge favorite. I mean, he just... He just lets it go on stage. Slash is another person that I love to shoot. The guitarist. The guitarist, yeah. There's been quite a few. I don't like shooting jam bands because it doesn't really go with my style. What I like is when I can focus in on one person and kind of isolate them in a portrait. So I love blues singers, Etta James, B.B. King, Willie Nelson. But jam bands, which are incredibly popular, of course, in Colorado between uh, The Dead, String Cheese Incident, Mm -hmm. Fish. Mm -hmm. There's just too much going on on stage. Or maybe too little. (laughs) <laughs> both. <Okay. laughs> it doesn't lend itself to my style. Having done it for as long as I have, I have a specific style and I know kind of which, which bands work for me and which bands don't. You say that you have a style. How would you describe your style? Black and white for sure. And film always, right? It's all film, yeah. It's all 100% black and white film. And it's very minimalistic. Why film? Still today, yeah. it's so retro. I feel like it has an aesthetic that you can't copy with anything else like it's just how some people like to record music on analog as opposed to digital it just has a quality with shadows especially that I really really love it just really brings the deep shadows in people's faces and hands out and I also like how it slows me down because I really need to think about what I'm doing when I'm shooting film so I'm not going to go out there and just stick the camera above my head and just start firing away I'm actually really looking for a moment 
You're being mindful of Very how mindful. much film exactly. you're using because exactly. that's expensive. It's also painstaking because you have to take the film out and replace exactly. it. Exactly. That's the only bummer about film. There are some drawbacks. And sure enough, someone will come do a solo right in front of me right when my film runs out. And I'm like, oh. and it's always the time too. I mean, I've changed millions of rolls of film. And it's always that time if, you know, Slash is right in front of you that you're fumbling with the film and can't get it across. <laughs> but what? I still wouldn't trade it. What is the the f- picture or artist that got away? Oh, well, <laughs> Lemmy from Motorhead, because I've had photo passes to shoot him three times and he was just too ill to come. So I missed it three times. And that's real bummer. I mean, David Bowie's another one, but I never got that close to David Bowie. Hmm. But Lemmy, I actually had the pass in my pocket and he wasn't able to make it. And I feel like Both of those artists would really lend themselves to what I do. I feel like in pop music especially, there's real emphasis placed on how a singer or musician looks. Mm -hmm. I guess I just want you to reflect on that a little bit. Like the the talent, the musical talent versus the, the looks. Yeah, I haven't had the chance to shoot a lot of pop artists. I did want to shoot Adele because I felt like, especially with black and white, it would just be really gorgeous with her facial aesthetics. And I didn't, she didn't let anyone shoot her, unfortunately. Oh, really? But yeah, it was kind of a bummer because she's so gorgeous. This so, was at Red Rocks? It was at Pepsi Center. At Pepsi actually, Center. Actually. Red Rocks is such a small venue for uh, someone yeah, like right? Adele. Now. I know, I know. So I think for me, It doesn't matter. Like, Lemmy is not a good-looking guy. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but he's rough, and he's got, you know, wrinkles and a big mole. But to me, that's just amazing looking. I don't need perfect. An excerpt of my 2018 conversation with rock photographer Lisa Siciliano. And that's our celebration of what we might have taken for granted before the pandemic. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.